Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews is near the end of the New Testament, chapter 6, and we shall start looking at verse 18. This is the advent of hope. The word advent is an old world that means intermission. And if you look at the history of the world, the world was going, doing its own thing, doing everything it wanted to do, and then boom, you have this period of time where Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, walked the earth, living a sinless life, and died on the cross for the sins of the world, rose from the dead and ascended, and then the world's back to what it was doing, going through its normal processes. And so we call this Advent because it was a break in the timeline of history where Jesus was born, where Jesus came into the world. It is also the advent of hope. We celebrate four Advent Sundays. We celebrate hope and peace and joy and love. And because Christmas is on a Sunday this year, we will have the Christ candle and the Christ-centered Advent. As we talk about hope, as I say every year and everybody says, hope is the belief that you are going to have a better tomorrow. It is a belief that something in the future is going to be good. And we have kind of taken the word hope saying that, well, I hope I get a vacation next year, or I hope the pizza is good, or I hope somebody notices me, or things of this nature where the aspect of what we're hoping for, I hope I win the lottery, is something that is just a pipe dream. And we say, well, I hope this and I hope that, but if we look at the future of my life, am I able to say, I hope that the next 20 years are great and that I can have a hope that is sure that I can either work for it or know that that is going to happen. And today, as in the time of Jesus, we look to all manner of beings and people to establish our hope. If you recall, Jesus came into earth in the Middle East, in Bethlehem. And if you look at your Bible you see that the Old Testament ends in Malachi and the New Testament starts in Matthew and that period is called the intertestamental period because it's 430 years. For 430 years, God did not send a vision. God did not send a dream. God did not send a prophet. God did not do anything to show the people of the earth that he exists and is interested in the Jewish people. There was 
all sorts of turmoil in the world before Jesus was born. And the Jews regularly would gather every Saturday and pray for God to show himself. And generation after generation after generation, God did not. And so you had nobody alive at the time that Jesus was born who had any first-hand knowledge or even had a memory of somebody they knew who had heard from God. 430 years, long time, longer than America's been here. It's a long time. And so the Jewish people kept going through the motions that they went through for the whole Old Testament. And they came to the place where many fell away from the faith because you had, during those 430 years, when the uh, Old Testament ends, you had Babylon who had beat up the Assyrians and Babylon took the Jewish people into captivity. Then the Persians beat up the Babylonians and they released the Jewish people back to Jerusalem. And then the Greeks came with the Spartans and all and they beat up the Persians. And then the Romans had a better idea so they came and they beat up the Greeks. And so through the memory that people had, they're looking at the Old Testament and they're looking out their window to see who's the world leader today things seemed very chaotic if they were to put their trust and hope in the Persians, for example. The Persians seemed to be very Jew-centric. The Darius was very pro-Jew. God was using them. In the book of Isaiah, God calls Darius of the Persians his tool, his servant. And so the Jews could say, well, maybe these people will give us back something, or maybe these people will allow us to build a temple, or these people will allow us to do sacrifices. And every time they turn around, their hopes were dashed because the government of that time was very fickled and changing. We get a lot of what we do in our government from the written documents of the Greeks and the Romans. But the Greeks and the Romans eventually turned into emperors who were, um, who were dictators, who were tyrants. And you read the stories of Nero and Caligula and other uh, Roman emperors who were just corrupt and they were devious and they were despicable human beings and they were running the government. And so the Jews saying, well, I think the Romans are going to give us the time of day. And then you see the Romans' morals go south. And so through all of this, you read the ancient Jewish writings of the intertestamental period, 1st and 2nd Maccabees are books that were written during the intertestamental period. We consider them historical but not inspired, so they are not in our Bible. But you read that and you see a sense of we're in this on our own. If anything's going to happen, we're going to have to do it. If anything's going to happen, God is not going to 
come in and help us, so we have to do it. And the, the uh, Levite priestly family of the Maccabees were the ones who kind of gathered the people and said, we got to go beat the Romans. So, and then it all fell apart, of course, and you can read that to see what happened. And so, people are saying, where is God? And people are saying, what is God going to do? And then, they, as I said, the Jews were going through their motions, and they would cast lots to see which priest would go into the Holy of Holies every year for the Day of Atonement. And the lots fell on a guy by the name of Zechariah. And Zechariah goes into the Holy of Holies. The only light that is in there is the light from his incense that he is carrying in there. And then, boom, for the first time in 430 years, an angel shows up and says, basically, God's back in the game. God is now going to do things and gives him information about John, who isn't born yet, and who John is going to be in relationship to Jesus Christ. And so in Luke 1, 1 through 80, you have the whole story of an angel visiting Mary and an angel visiting Zechariah, and, and the, the Zechariah becomes mute because he did not believe the angel. You know, it's been 430 years, but he doesn't believe the angel. And so eventually John is born and he says his name is John and everything is moving in God's plan toward Jesus Christ and toward the cross. And so if you had any hope prior to the visit of Zechariah and the angel, it would most likely be in your own strength. It would be in dumb luck, it would be in hopefully things were going to happen well, but they had no guarantee. And so when Jesus came, we talk about him bringing hope, and what does that mean? Well, you had, you could describe the world that Jesus came to as hopeless. Everybody who had hope, it would be just a random thing, whether it happened or not. It would be dumb luck if their hope came true. And Jesus came with a guarantee of a relationship with God. That is what we understand at the basic sense of why Jesus was born into the world and how he taught and all the miracles he did. And all these things were to show that he has information about the one true and living God that hasn't been heard in 430 years. As the religious establishment gets more and more corrupt, and eventually the corrupt religious establishment is what crucified Jesus, but he is standing against that. He is saying, no, God is like this, not like that. That God is like this and not like that. God is compassionate and loving, and forgiving of sins, and none of our works can impress him. And so if you look at Jesus and you look today, you have to ask the question, what do people hope in today? And I think in the same way as they did back in Jesus' day, 
people today are willing to look at any power, any authority, and say they will make things good. And in our system, we say, well, if I elect this person or if I elect this party, then my life will be better. But as we've seen time and time and time again, there, is, there are people who lie in politics. <gasps> and so if they say they're going to do this and this and this, they might or they might not. And then we go and we vote for them. And this is not one party against another. It's the whole system that has become ingrown and, oh, I could say, corrupt easily. There are corrupt people at every level of government. And I've met many of them in how this church relates with the county and how they talk. They are at, they're worse than Roman emperors sometimes, the things that they say about the people of God. And so you have at the county level, at the state level, and at the federal level, you have people who are there for the sole purpose of enriching themselves and for the sole purpose of making their own life good. And if they promise something to you, whether it be two cars in every garage and a chicken in every pot and the various things that people say, whether it happens or not, once they are in, they don't seem to care. And the idea that people today are generally disillusioned with how the United States is going, with how the world is going, there are even those who were surprised like nobody's business, surprised that Russia invaded Ukraine. Well, I can look at this part of the book, and it's nothing but this country invading that country, invading this country, invading that country, back to our earliest written memory of writings that come out of China and writings that come out of India, very old, non-biblical non writings, all they talk about is how violent people are and how people want to conquer the... I, I want your land. You've, you've got a vineyard in your land. And so I'm going to go kill you to take your vineyard because I want a vineyard. That's how the world works. And so we get surprised because we think we're so evolved. We think we're so intelligent. We think that we have put away the old things. And politicians debate on this, on whether things from the 80s even should be considered, or whether we are a new, different people. I remember hearing those in the various debates that were out there is, are we different, better people? And we think we are. And that came from the news and it came from the politicians and it was you know, published in the newspaper that we're better, more advanced people. And then boom, Russia invades Ukraine and look what happened. And we are not. We are the same people that God talks about in Isaiah and Obadiah and Jeremiah 
and Exodus and all these stories of people, human nature has never changed. Our technology has changed. Our housing and clothing have changed. Our jobs change. But who people are has never changed from Adam and Eve in the garden. We are descendants of Adam and Eve, and we live it out every day where God says, do anything you want except eat that one tree. And of course, in our minds, that means that one tree is better than all the rest because God will only keep something from me if it is really good because, and I've had people tell me this, God is a killjoy. I have had in witness opportunities back when I worked in tech, somebody tell me that's to my face, that God is against humanity. God wants to punish us and make the fun go away and make us boring and therefore they do not follow God. They do not believe in the truth of the Bible or of Jesus Christ because there's no fun in it because their hope is for a fun tomorrow and God is the one barrier to them having all sorts of fun. And so these are the things that I hear and then you look at how the world is put together and we live in a very sin-focused world. Every modern TV show, every news report, every uh, politician speak, everything that's on TV is celebrating sin, is celebrating a deviancy from God's plan, is celebrating things that I want to do, but God wants to stop me. Therefore, God must be bad because I am good. And the idea that I can make better decisions than God, the idea that I can make a better plan, the idea that I can take this book and put it on a shelf or throw it away, and I can come up in my head with all sorts of new ideas is where we're at today. And people are standing, and even though they don't say these exact words, they are expressing the fact that they don't need God, that God is old-fashioned, or God is an old idea. We have evolved as a people, they say, from the past, and God is one of those things we leave in the past. We do not need God because we can make our own plans, and they will be great, and they will be fun, and they will be profitable, and God wants to stop all that. And so the idea that Jesus' hope is competing with other hope, there is no true hope out there, especially today with inflation and with job problems and with housing problems and interest rates and things of this, people are getting to the point where when pollsters talk to them, they are actually saying they are hopeless. They are saying there is no hope in today's system. There is no hope in my family because we have different political views 
or there's no hope in the government because they don't care what happens to me. There's no hope in a job because it may go away tomorrow. There's nothing that is steadfast that I can have hope in that tomorrow will be a better day than today. One thing that the world promotes is actually saw a TV commercial which showed a very diverse group of people. They were implying that they were related or loved each other or something and they were at a Thanksgiving dinner and the narrator said, this is the reason for the season. Now that is blasphemy because the reason for the season is Jesus Christ and they weren't advertising Jesus Christ they were advertising a store where you can buy all this stuff that they had. And so buying stuff is the modern reason for the season. They even ripped that off from us. And so the idea of what did Jesus do? How did Jesus bring hope to a hopeless world back then? And how does he bring hope to a hopeless world today? In Hebrews 6, and I'll start in 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for the refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of my soul, a hope that enters into inner place behind the curtain. And so what is the author of Hebrews saying? The author of Hebrews is saying that what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, you take all the theology of what happened at the virgin birth, his sinless life, the cross, the burial and resurrection, and the ascension. You take that whole package of Jesus' life, that whole intermission, that whole advent, and it gives us a hope. And what is the hope? Well, Jesus came to die for your sins. And if your sins are gone, if your sins are forgiven, if your sins are redeemed, and then if your sins are uh, out, yeah, as far as the east is from the west, your sins are buried in the deepest sea. These are two biblical phrases that talk about what God does with our sin when we have forgiveness. Our sins are no longer there. And then Jesus takes his righteousness and puts us, put it on us like a robe. So when we stand before God the Father... We are seen as sinless, we are seen as perfect, we are seen as righteous because of what Christ did. 
And so whatever you are doing in your life, wherever you are at, if you say, I hope I have a better tomorrow, okay, that tomorrow is better than today, which is a good, solid Christian hope, okay? You have that hope, you can now say, because of what Jesus Christ has done, because of what Jesus Christ has given me. Now somebody say, well, that hope is foolish, but if you have a passage like this, you have to come to this with an understanding that the Bible is true, that everything is in the Bible is true. God the Father vowed, he made an oath. Today we have oaths at things like weddings, you know, till death do us part, that is an oath. Back in old times, you would make oaths instead of just saying, well, I'm going to go to the store. You would make an oath. I am going to the store by God or something like that. And you would go to the store and everybody would go, oh, you kept your oath. God makes oaths too. And he makes an oath that Jesus Christ's work on the cross applied to you will be fully and completely accepted. And then the passage says there's two things that make God's oath true. One, he can't lie. Okay? If God can lie, we are wasting our time because we don't know what's true. God cannot lie. We stand firm in the idea that God cannot lie. And so if he makes the oath, if he stands up and says Jesus is Christ's sacrifice is accepted and applied to his people, that is a true statement. Secondly, God cannot change. He is immutable is the theological word. And so God cannot only lie, God is not going to come out of his castle one day and change his mind saying, uh, that didn't really work out the way I wanted. Jesus Christ's work is not going to count. We must now do this other thing. Okay? That is what Hebrew is arguing against because God never changes his mind, never changes direction from what he wills to do, and because he never lies by the full power and strength and sovereignty of God Almighty, Jesus' sacrifice and his activity on earth and his work in heaven will be accepted and applied to you. You will have no problem when you pass away or you're raptured standing before God Almighty and being accepted as his child, as his friend, as a person that God loves more than anything else because you have the righteousness of Christ on you. The Bible says that we are God's delight. 
okay? He is delighted in us. Not once every three years. He's delighted in us all the time. The Psalms also call us, those who are saved, the apple of God's eye. We talk about the apple of my eye or something like that. That is somebody when I think about good things, I think of them. When I think about yummy things, I think of this food. The apple of my eye means that I'm thinking about it, that it is in my thoughts and I want it. That is how God views you. That is how God views you and he's not lying. And he can never, ever, 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 ever change his mind. Okay? If you are saved, you are fully saved for all of eternity. And that's why I can say with full confidence, my tomorrow will be better than it is today. It is my hope, but it is a guaranteed hope. It is a hope that is sure. It is a hope that will not be dashed. It is a hope that is not a human-level hope. My hope is in Christ. My hope is in God the Father. And my hope is in the sacrifice that he has given so that I can have eternal life and every tomorrow for all eternity will be better than today. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we praise you for this hope that is sure, that was put in Christ, that is guaranteed. And I pray that we will stand firm and when the chaos and garbage of this world gets in our way, I pray that we will understand that we will have a brighter tomorrow, a better tomorrow, a happier tomorrow, a joyous tomorrow because of what Christ has done and because how God the Father said it counts. Lord, we praise you for this and ask your blessing on this Christmas season and, uh, and the rest of the day. We ask this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.